This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome again to another Investor Investor podcast. Today we have Simon Murdoch, who was a partner in episode one, has been an entrepreneur who I've known for several years. But let's hear about your story. So, Simon, a bit about your education and background and moving on to your entrepreneurial journeys. Okay, yeah. So what I do today is I'm the managing partner of Episode One Ventures. So I'm a VC, and this is actually the third time I've been a VC. But I started off as an entrepreneur. I've been an angel investor very actively and now a VC, but doing some angel on the side. But my original background was I did a degree at Cambridge at Trinity College, which is in physics. I did very well at that, but then went to work at GC Marconi, which now doesn't exist, in Chelmsford after university. And I got interested in computing there, having done a physics degree. And then I went off to do a PhD at Brunel University in artificial intelligence. Was it called artificial intelligence? Well, in those it was days? called cybernetics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was starting to be called artificial intelligence. It was 83 to 86 I did the PhD. Okay, yeah. Where Edinburgh was the strong. It was actually, yeah. There was a guy called Professor Alan Bundy. And I, yep. I nearly went to Edinburgh, but thought it would be too cold. Right. Brunel was kind of doing it in the south. So I, I yeah. went to Brunel. And I had a great time there and realized that actually it was going to be quite a while before artificial intelligence was real. I did a lot of Lisp and Prolog programming and that sort of stuff. And, and while I was doing the PhD, I became more commercial. I started doing some teaching. I was also doing some freelance work on the side. And I went to join a company that happened to be doing bespoke software work for, it was in those days, the IBM PC. And they were a generalist software what business. What company was that? They were called Triptych Systems, okay. based in uh, Gerrard's Cross, west of London. And I went there as a project manager to start with, but quickly learned a lot about running a business. And I became a director within a year or so. And about three years later, the, the founder actually left and went to do something else and left me in charge of the company. He owned the company. He owned, no, I, at that time, I think I took a majority stake. The company had had a lot of ups and downs. It was quite hard in those days selling bespoke software. It was a kind of, I always think of it as a kind of feast or famine situation where you either had too much work to do or not enough. It was very difficult to match the workplace. If you're small, I worked for Logica out of university, and and that was big enough where that didn't happen. Yeah, so it was tough. But the the lucky thing for me was that I was in charge of this company. We did systems for bookshops as one of the specialist areas we focused on. And therefore, I saw what Amazon did in the US and understood the supply chain in the UK very well about about buying books. So this is early 90s? 95. Okay. 94, I think Amazon started. Okay, yeah. So I took control of the company in 1990. So I saw what Amazon was doing, went to our customers and said, hey, you should be selling books on the internet. And nobody wanted to pay <laughs> us to develop a website. Yeah. So, and I also twigged that actually on the internet, there wasn't going to be room for many, many bookshops because of the accessibility for everybody on the internet. So I set up book pages and that was in 1996. Set up book pages to compete with our customers at the, the software business I've been at. Book pages, uh, why? Because... Pages on the internet. Yeah, yeah. it was really. Yeah, pages on the internet. Dot um, com. Did you get the it was, com? It was bookpages.com. <laughs> yes. I mean, this was, I think, a very interesting part of my personal journey was because I started this business. We started it with £12,000 of personal money, actually, a credit card overdraft. 
And then I spent, it, it started to work. It was growing at about 20% per month in terms of selling books on the internet. We did a deal with the Daily Telegraph to sell books and all these sorts of things. But I found it very difficult to raise money. So as an entrepreneur, I spent over a year trying to raise some finance for the company. This was for working capital to buy the books, was it? Uh, yeah, and just to pay for the programmers and the okay, computers yeah, and everything. Yeah, you yeah. Know, even then, you couldn't start a business for 12K and expect it to trade through to profitability. And also, there were no software tools to build websites. So we had to build our own software From tools. From HTML. To, to, yeah, exactly, <laughs> to, to manage the database of a million books it was. So eventually, I managed to get some angel finance right at the beginning of 1998, and Amazon had already started knocking on our door. They were quite interested in the fact that uh, we built our own search engine. Again, there were no search engine tools for internet websites in those days. Um, so we built our own, and they were quite impressed with what we'd done with very little resources. And so how I started realizing Angel is a great thing to do. Within three months of raising £300,000 worth of angel investment, we'd sold to Amazon for a very nice price in terms of Amazon shares. Okay, and so, what the multiple in the 10? Uh, yeah, it was, their, their multiple ended up being a lot more than that because... Amazon also insisted that um, we had to hold the shares for at least a year. <laughs> so during that period, the share price went up about another fivefold. Right. So those, those angels did. 100x or incredible. more, possibly, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. That sort of order. So how big was the company at that point when you sold? That, when we sold, people, it was 22 people, I think, and about just over a million turnover selling books. So he was buying you, wasn't he? To he was, the team, yeah, yeah, which was largely me and um, the developers that I had. The way Jeff Bezos described it was he drew a, a graph on a piece of paper with two sort of exponential curves stacked on top of each other. And he said, what I'm buying is the difference between you helping us have a faster start in the UK versus if we were already building a website to compete with you said, <laughs> and we're launching soon. But if I buy your business and your team, then I de-risk the launch and I've got people that understand the supply chain and so on. And that's what I'm buying is that delta. But the alternative was to squash you. Please. Yes, and he effectively said he was going to. <laughs> so, very politely. <laughs> nice guy? Yeah, Good guy to actually, deal with. Uh, extremely charismatic. So I do know that he met up with our competitor at the Internet Bookshop. He met up with them at the same time. And I think that what happened was that uh, myself and the lead agent investor that worked with me, Ricky Tata, who later became my business partner, he and I, there was a cultural fit um, mm. with Amazon. They liked us, we liked them, and, and that was the main reason. It can't be in a multiple of revenue, can it? It wasn't, no, and, and well. Internet Bookshop was bigger than us at the time. So, so it was we just really, liked you better. It was really like the cultural fit, yeah. So you squashed Internet Bookshop? We did in the end. Although they got sold to WH Smith later. Okay, um, okay. So they did okay. So what Jeff Bezos was buying was a team that would be with their launch in the UK, and it, and it was an, the most amazing experience as an individual to be what they called the country manager, effectively the, the boss of the UK business when it launched. And I did that for just under two years. And he's a very charismatic person. He, he, even then, it was clear that he was incredibly ambitious. He named it Amazon so it could sell everything in the world. His, his, his vision was always to be the, the e-commerce business of, on the internet. And it was just books at this point when you were started, involved. Yeah, just yeah. books. I mean, while I was there, I started to do music and video, but uh, it was just books. And, and he's just extreme visionary, but he's unbelievably competitive as well. So if you read the book, The Everything Store, that comes out even more. But the bit that I didn't really enjoy at Amazon was that um, they don't really look after their people. So there was a huge churn of employees, and uh, I think there still is quite a high churn. But in, in my day, I, I was burnt out after about a year and a half. It was really? just so, so, such pressure. Did you have kids at that point? Were you uh, yes, I had three kids. Yeah, and, okay. and in fact, and then later went through a divorce and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was challenging but amazing to be at the sort of 
centre of, of e-commerce becoming famous and important in the UK. Did you leave or did you uh, have yeah, to leave? Or? No, I left. But we got an opportunity. So Ricky, the angel that invested me, and he also helped me sell to Amazon because he'd sold businesses before. Okay. He and I left to start what we called at that time Chase Episode 1. We had a fund at the height of the internet boom, so we signed up in December 99. We signed up to uh, work with Chase Capital Partners that later became JP Morgan Partners. And they provided merged. most of the capital. They provided, yeah, we had, a, it was great. I mean, the, the fundraising took basically a month of negotiation because we'd had an introduction by Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures. Oh, right. And um, we got introduced to them and the headline was $100 million dollars. To invest in internet was ventures. Was this a dot com boom or bust? It was December 99, so it was during the boom time. Yeah. And uh, it was really quick to get that deal done. But then, I don't know if you remember the timing, but around March, April 2000, then by October, it was clear it had been a bubble mm-hmm. because the, the stock market and all the valuations sort of collapsed and many people lost lots of money. Uh, we, we did well for them. We, we'd only invested in nine companies. The one you'll have heard of was Betfair, okay. um, which eventually went public in 2010. So we made a lot of money from them with that one. We'd also invested in what became ScanSafe, the gold that got sold to Cisco. We invested in First Tuesday and got our money back. And we invested so they had one. a multiple of two or three? They made, or they made three and a half X. Over 10, uh, over, years. Over 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's pretty good so, for a VC. So it's not bad yeah. for a VC. And particularly that timing. Yeah, exactly. For that timing, it was incredible. Um, so we went off, and um, I then started angel investing just on on my own, really. In this is one, is yeah, so one, sort of mid oh one. Yeah, um, so I'd, I'd been doing a bit anyway. In fact, my first angel investment was in nineteen ninety nine. Was a company called Magicalia, uh, which did get sold to a, a private equity company. A few years later, we made a positive return on that. But uh, two thousand and one onwards, I sort of acted as a sort of one-man VC, really, I like to think of it. Family yeah. office sort of? Yeah, well, it was yeah. probably, a, it, it was really an angel investor, yes. yeah. but yeah, nowadays call it one-man VC, <laughs> yeah. when you're selling to limited partners to try and get into a fund. Yeah. But the key thing for me, that phase of my life, is that I really wanted to be actively helping the companies. Mm. With the experience of Amazon, everybody thought I knew what I was talking about, and, you know, quickly learned. You were, to some extent. More than any others. I'd learned a lot working with Chase because, you know, they, they showed us what deals looked like and, and you know, learned all the, the best terms for, for those sort of things. And I incorporated those into our, our standard angel terms, things like a sort of hurdle preference, even while getting EIS. Um, oh, I'm right, sure you yeah. know about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're doing that from a very early time. But I, I really loved helping the companies, so going on the boards of businesses. And so, for example, I invested in Shazam in 2001 and, and was on the, on the board at the beginning and, in fact, had a short period where the VCs that came in edged out one of the founders and they asked me to be interim CEO for a few months while they hired a CEO. So, so what was your role on the board, the investor director? Or yeah, you- I was generally a, an angel director. Yeah. So, you know, how these things work. You get a consortium, a group of angels together, and uh, you know, one of us would be on the board, or sometimes two of us. And, and I, I often volunteered for that position because I liked helping the companies. Uh, so another one was I went on the board of Natural Motion, which is oh, yeah, in Oxford, Oxford, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and that they, was a good exit. They eventually got sold to Zynga for $500 million. I wonder if Zynga got $500 million worth of value out of that. I don't know. It's <laughs> another story. I really, really enjoyed the angel investing, but you, you do get very busy. I mean, that's one of the challenges. If you go on lots of boards, yeah, and you end up filling your time going to board meetings. And although that's enjoyable, it, it, it does make it more difficult then to, to look for new investment. Yes. But you had another 
startup as well, friends. No, but it's a bit later. So one of the, okay. I'd always been interested in languages and not very good at learning them. So I created a social community I think even before Facebook launched. So it was around something like 2005, set up Friends Abroad. I tried to get other people to run it, but eventually I decided I ought to go back and work sort of half my time while looking after my angel investments in, in Friends Abroad. And it was a great learning experience, as you call it, a kind of failure. Um, <laughs> yes. that, uh, that what happened was I put a lot of personal money into it, but it was, it was really quite challenging. First of all, I hadn't realized how lucky I was when I set up book pages. I had a fantastic technical people. Mm. In particular, it was a guy called Simon Kane, who later became the CTO of Love Film and later the CTO of Zoopla. And I'd hired him straight out of university at the age of 21. And he was the guy that invented that search engine that helped to oh, sell to wow. Amazon. He was a genius and I hadn't quite realized that. So with, with Friends Abroad, I didn't have such good technical people. It was actually a much harder project because we were in 10 languages. So maintaining the content for mm. 10 languages was difficult. And then the other key thing, the most important thing, was people don't like paying for language social community. So it was very, very hard to monetize. I mean, we never really worked out how to persuade people to pay for the service. Right. So in the end, we sold the user base to a German competitor. For a, for a, a small fraction of what gone in. Exactly. Yeah, so not a 100% failure, and there's still some outcome. <laughs> yeah, it was some outcome, yeah. but you know, a home for it to go to, really. Yes. But, but that was a really learning experience because earlier in my career, I've been influenced a lot by sort of views of entrepreneurship and American attitudes that you just have to be persistent enough. If you just keep trying, you'll get, so you'll get there in the end. Yes. And, you know, don't mind me swearing, it's bollocks. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, the most important thing one has to do is to listen to the market and understand, Absolutely. you know, what your customers are telling you and what the activity of your customers mm. is telling you so you mm. can keep moving your business, iterating your business mm. until you find something that works. Exactly. And sometimes you have to pivot completely Yes, but even the best of businesses are, are, are multiple iterations over time until you get a business model that works. So, how many years were you doing Friends Abroad? Then? It was only, it was about two years full time, yes. two thousand and six to eight. Eight, and now it's ten years. So you've done a lot in those ten years. So let's yeah. just run through that. So from when you closed down Friends Abroad, you're yes. already in, still oh, into yeah, investing, so but you absolutely. had another couple of VC stints. So the first one was the Chase episode one I've already mentioned. Then I did some more angel investing, and and I ended up investing in Zoopla. In the well, first round? The or? very first round, because right. I knew Alex Chesterman from Love Film. I'd invested in Love Film. I'd invested in Screen Select, which became Video Island, which became Love Film. And Alex Chesterman, the founder of Zoopla, was the founder of that of Screen Select. And he's a great entrepreneur and one of the best negotiators I've ever worked with, an awesome, awesome individual. Very tough, but, but, but fair. But you want those first few entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. Because they push hard. You know they'll push hard against the customers, suppliers, staff, and everything. Well, he's the sort of guy that works till three in the morning and, you know, right. very, very impressive guy and deserves to be where he is. So I invested in Zoopla as, as an angel and, and they got to know Octopus a bit. So mm. we just co-invested in some things together. They introduced me to another one called Vision Direct, originally called Get Lenses, which also did well in the end, sold to Essilor. And having worked with Octopus a bit, they said, come and help us manage our portfolio. We called, I think we call it just portfolio development. So I worked half my time for Octopus from 2010 until 2012. And again, that was a good learning experience to see the inside of another VC, um, see how they think. Was that the full portfolio for all their various funds? Yeah. Yes, it was. At that time, they had sort of mini private equity practice. Chris Olmer, who's now at Downing, was running right. a group that did um, small private equity transactions called the Growth Team. They kind of merged those businesses with Alex McPherson's sort of ventures team. So now they just concentrate on venture with the Titan VCTs. Yeah. Octopus as a whole has got lots of other yeah. aspects to it uh, in terms of a bigger business. 
But it was great being inside another VC, working with a team of people looking at investments together. But I, I particularly concentrated on helping the companies we'd already invested in, because mm. that was partly what I enjoyed. And it was really while I was there that I, I heard about, I'm still doing angel investments uh, of my own, but I heard about the Enterprise Capital Fund scheme yes. that's run by British Business Bank. So it left Octopus in 2012 to set up Episode 1 Ventures which now is this VC that we've been running since then. Which has had, you're on your second fund. Second fund. So the, the first fund, we closed September 13. So it took about a year and a bit to raise the fund and persuade British Business Bank to back us, get the private investors to go in. How big was the fund? If you... 37 and a half million pounds. Right. Uh, we've invested in 22 companies in, in that fund. In November 17, we've launched Fund 2 of 60 million pounds. And we're looking for another 25 or so. With some ECF money. In Again, there. ECF, yeah. We'll have something about ECF in the show notes. Yeah, and it's, and it's a, a great scheme. So my journey, therefore, I've been an entrepreneur. I've been an angel investor. I've had this experience of VC, but I'm in the best phase of my life, I think, now, because I found it quite lonely being an angel. Did you not belong to a group? I've been a member of Cambridge Angels. I've also been in the Surrey Investment um, Club, well, because I live yes. in, in Hazelmere in yeah. Surrey. And of course, generally, when you're investing as an angel, you're investing on, alongside other people. Mm. I've, I've invested with some great other angels in, in the past, but you're all in different investments and you know, you're on a lot of boards. It's quite a lonely... Um, Funny if I totally disagree with that, yeah, because well, I, I learned everything from the Cambridge Angels. I'm sure of it at the moment. So I, you know, it, I find it very social. I've been skiing with them two weeks well, ago. Okay. <laughs> I don't just, live in Cambridge. No, so exactly. Yeah, perhaps I just didn't, London's didn't, too big and you live outside in yeah. Surrey, don't you? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. maybe the, the Surrey group just didn't gel with me in the same way. Well, they play golf, and that's about it, well, I think, from, because I was a member yeah. at one point. <laughs> but my point really is that, that as part of a VC... And we've got a team that are all looking at the same investments. We're all doing the same investments together. And you've got, this, you've got a common purpose, really. Yeah. So I prefer being part of that team. And then also investing other people's money means you can do bigger things. And, and being a VC means that the companies take you even more seriously than do their But you have huge responsibility here. There is there It's is not just your own checkbook. It's not that yeah. like you're failing. You're losing money for other people. You're making money. But yeah. Exactly. The point I'd like to get to is that one of the trajectories an angel can have is that with that experience, they can become a VC. And British Business Bank is looking for other people that want to start funds. And so some of your listeners might be interested in in that. The patient capital view, one of the outputs from that was exactly that, to upskill people, angels particularly, to help run funds. So, you know, for some of your listeners, that will be a good track for them to do. If I would say one of the key things about being an angel is to think quite a lot about what your objectives are with it. I still love being an angel investor, and I still do some angel investments and still a member of the Cambridge Angels. Let's talk about failures. What people have to understand, it is a very difficult journey. These are two about the entrepreneurs here, and the angels have got to be patient in doing that. So we mustn't be specific, but you have a sheet in front of you which has got quite a lot of zeros on it. Is there any common theme, or are there any stories from that? I've got um, two, four, six, about nine companies which have totally wiped out. Which is actually only about a quarter looking at the whole sheet, which is pretty good. So what sort of things? Team yeah, dynamic? Yeah, the most frustrating one is when the people don't work. I can see two companies on here. There was one in particular I invested in where the, and somehow I knew this before investing and so I should never have invested. And so great lesson for angels is follow your instincts. Yeah. Um, there, there was a company that I invested in where they'd hired a CEO and there was a technical co- the technical founder and after investing, it was clear that, that they, they hated each other. <laughs> and the reason that there was a, hired CEO in there was because the technical founder wasn't strong enough to run the business himself. 
but they were poisonous with each other and it ended up... And you didn't notice that? How long was the DD? How long did you spend talking to them before? Uh, Well, I'd I'd gone in actually with the Sussex Investment, um, John Bates and... Sussex Ventures? Yeah, Sussex Ventures. Yeah. And... um, so, yeah, my personal diligence on that one probably wasn't... It wasn't as much as it possibly should have been. Yeah, yeah. it's OK. Anyway, whatever, you have to well, learn. You do learn. <laughs> and every situation is a learning experience. I had another one where I, I made the same mistake. It was actually a friend of mine that I invested in this business, and he was a very solid, good CTO. I helped him find an investor who then became the CEO, and then they fell out, and again, the whole company was wiped out. So. Yeah. People problems, as, as I'm sure you've experienced as well, is, is yeah, the, I, most, I, the most dangerous. I would very rarely invest in a single founder. Yeah. Would you agree with that statement? Um, I can't quite think of whether I have or not, but generally you're looking for teams, aren't yes, you? Yes, exactly. Two or three founders. What about market failures, tech failures, anything like that? Yeah, one that's interesting is DataSift, which a lot of people might have heard about. Some um, really great entrepreneur called Nick Holstead. On paper, it looked great after a while because they got um, Mark Suster of Upfront Ventures, led a big round, and it was on paper very valuable. But um, eventually, it's sort of been sold for um, not much is- money, and, and the angels got nothing because it didn't pay out the preference. Is this because they couldn't get it into market? Or the- yeah, well, that one was an interesting one where they were analysing the Twitter firehose. Okay. And Twitter then bought a competitor called Gnip that uh, was doing the same thing and then turned off the firehose. Turned off the firehose. <sighs> yeah, and Goodness so me. Datasift then tried to work with Facebook and do other analytics of social media, but it wasn't enough to get them a big enough business. Something that came out of Entrepreneur First that was doing it with LinkedIn, which I don't know if you invested in, which again, LinkedIn turned off their connection there and they pivoted quite strongly. A single point of failure, a single dependency like that can be dangerous. Yeah, in fact, one shouldn't really invest in that situation, probably. Not. Just, Thanks, Peter. <laughs> I wish I no, had no, you no, around all the time. <laughs> I'm talking to the microphone here, not to you, Simon. <laughs> I'm sure you've made some mistakes. Absolutely. Well I've got more failures than you, I think. <laughs> I, I, I really do like to talk about failures. Yes. And another one that I had where I, I think sometimes if you really like the people, and because I kind of invested in a business in Wales called Subhub where I really like the founder, the entrepreneur, but they just, they're in a very competitive market trying to do the sort of thing that Wix does, W-I-X. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, a, a website builder. Yeah, yeah. And they just yeah. never really got the software working well enough to mean it was intuitive enough to actually get going. So... Yeah, it's probably a lifestyle business now, isn't it? That's the sort of thing yeah. you feel turns into a three or four man band turning exactly. over 700, 600K and yeah. you never get out. As episode one, we said that we invest in businesses where they've built their minimum viable product and really you're, you're trying to avoid taking the technical risk mm. with that particular business. The VC model, yeah. They haven't got through the technical risk. They haven't really built something that was intuitive enough. Mm. It was a bit earlier than, than we do as a VC. Yes, Okay. So one thing we talked about earlier before we recording was uh, the difference between the US and the UK, because you've obviously had quite a lot of experience there. Mm. You mentioned information flow. So talk more about that and other differences. I think the positive thing to say for this is that the UK is a great place to be an angel investor. The tax benefits of SEIS and EIS are fantastic. We don't seem yet to have the whole convertible note um, thing which goes on in the US. Coming, I've just it's coming a bit. Somebody talking about yeah, that. The, the advanced subscription agreements. They, yes. they have to have a long stop date. I mean, you can have EIS and well, you can have a CLN convertible loan note for the non EIS and yeah, a, a, exactly. Uh, I, I don't really value. like convertible notes. They're not, right. not as good for the investors. I mean, the entrepreneurs say they like them because they're quick. But and we don't have to have that horrible conversation about priced rounds either. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, they're not great. So what happens in the US, which is unpleasant to angel investors, is that once VCs start getting involved, so I've seen this several times as an, as an angel, 
then they put terms in where they class people as either major investors or not. Mm. And the major investors tend to be people who invested at least a million dollars, say, which is obviously hardly any of the angels. And if you're not a major investor, you don't get information rights, you don't get preemption rights, mm. which means they could do a down round and wash you out. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, not having preemption rights, they often don't even tell you anything. Viagogo is an example of that, although it's based in Europe, the founder is American. I invested in their very first round. I've never been told anything about the subsequent rounds that have happened. Right. I don't even know what investment it's had. Really? It's hopeless as an investor. So, you could ring them up, could you? Or they I have occasionally, to be fair to them, I have twice, I think, written to them saying, you know, what are my shares worth? How much have you raised? And they have actually given me some information. Right. But it's not their normal practice to tell the angels anything, even the fact that they're raising another X million. And know. where are the legals there? The UK company? It's US legals. Okay. So US legals don't generally provide as much protection to the early stage investors. Right. So I now far, far prefer to almost always only do UK legals. I was in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago and I met the guy who's really most famous angel, I think, in Russia. They're starting to use UK legals mm. in Russia. Are they? Yes. Yeah, it's nice and simple, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. and the other thing about uh, US legals is that there's lots and lots of different documents and you lose track of which ones are about which. Yes. I mean, ours are so simple with a, you know, some sort yeah, of investment agreement. Child agreement, investment agreement yeah. and, and, the and the articles. articles. Yeah. You need to go to those two things and it's yeah. nice and simple. Yeah. Structure of your portfolio. You've done 40 investments. I've done 60 odd. You've lost less than me. You must be doing something right. I can see from here you've had a cash on cash positive outcome so far that you have done it over longer. What do you think about stretching your portfolio of angel investments? Let me explain how I think about it now, which is quite different to when I started. So there's a number of threads to this. But the first thing is to realize that as an angel investor, it takes quite a long time to get your money back and make those big profits. As in as a in, decade, really. It can. So I invested in Shazam in 2001. Uh, Apple and Shazam announced just before Christmas 17 that the Apple's back. 16 years, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'd had, had a partial exit, which paid more than my money back several years ago. And, and then this is all more upside. Yes. So that, that's good. Um, but it's a long time. Natural mm. Motion was 2001 to 2014. You know, you're talking about a long time for the for the home runs to really play out. Yeah. On the flip side, the bad news comes quite quickly. So if a company raises a round of finance and then you can't get the next round of finance, it's usually within two years or so, it goes yeah. bust. Sometimes it's three or four years. So I like to say the lemons ripen early. What that means, I think, is that you need to be planning to in- invest over the long term and thinking hard about how much you should invest in each business. Right. So that's one thread. The second thread is that because it's a hits business more than most of us realize when we start. So what I mean is that if you take natural motion, which is so far my best outcome, I made 77 times my money on the first round and 45 times my money blended, blended. across, across all, all the rounds. Result. Yeah. It is. And uh, a lot of people don't realize the biggest benefit of EIS is you pay no capital gains tax. Mm. So when you get you know, a nice seven-figure sum or more out of a deal like that and pay no capital gains tax, is very, very satisfying. Until we get a change of government, potentially. Well, potentially. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say to any future government, <laughs> I'd reuse that money to invest in more companies exactly. so they should leave it with us. Yeah, exactly. It's good for the economy. But given that you can make 70 or more times your money sometimes, but then you have a number of companies, in my case, about a quarter, where you lose all your money, then it's really important to do plenty of investments, plenty of different companies. Yes. Now, previously, I would have advised any angel to think about doing at least 10. But now, having done the maths on it, because we've been raising funds in the last few years, and I've done this maths to try and persuade people to invest in our funds, you really need more than 20 investments. Okay. 
And when you start to think about what proportion of them you make 10x or more, what proportion go bust, when you do the maths of the statistics of it, you should really have at least 20 companies. In fact, Syndicate Room have got Fund 28. And I spoke to the person that came up with the 28 number and I could send you the spreadsheet. So Mm. this is the number they think that you need in order to... I know, and we we say in a VC fund that our target is 25 per fund, 25 companies per fund. You're better with more. Yeah. So 25, 30, uh, where it's happening. But there's there's an overhead involved in this. There is, of course. This spreadsheet gets longer and longer. You'd end up signing documents every week or every other week. Exactly. And then, then the challenge is you can't be on 20 boards. Oh, clearly not. So you, ideally, if as an angel, then you need to be working with other angels and having other people you trust to be on the boards. Because I'm sure we'll talk about it. But I think being on the board is one of the most satisfying things you can do as an angel and most useful to the company. But it's also the best way to, to protect your investment. Exactly. You can, you can help the company in lots of really useful ways. I, I always felt as an angel that my most important job was to help the CEO and the management team see the wood for the trees mm. of working out what they need to do by when. Mm. And that's what we think a lot about as a VC as well. You know, what, what do we need to prove by the time we next need to start raising money to mean that we've got a good chance of raising that additional money? Yes, and also not to prick their bubble of enthusiasm, passion, yeah. complete non-realism, but at the same time to inject some realism into yeah. their lives. And, and the ideal place for the angel to be is that trusted mentor on, as an NED who's kind of between the entrepreneurs and any incoming VCs or, or future. But as you know, this leads to a conflict, doesn't it? Because you're representing money. Well, <laughs> you've got the entrepreneurs and you've got the company to take into I account. Think as long as you're an honourable person, then you yes. should do that yes. in a fair yeah, way. Different hats. Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes. So thread two is have multiple investments, 20 or more. And therefore, I think it's really important as an angel to think about structuring what you do, especially near the beginning when you start, and think, how much can I afford to be in this portfolio? It needs to be money that I can afford to lose or have tied up for 10, 15 years. Mm. And obviously, that might change if you've got sources of income, which means you might only have, say, 200K today, Mm. but you might be having another 50K to add to your portfolio each year, whatever. But you need to really think through what are the resources you want to put into your angel investment? Mm. And if you divide that by 20, how much does that mean you should put in per company? And also per round, of course. We yes. don't put it all in at once. Well, that's true. Lots of angels, I've noticed, tend to invest in the first round when the valuations are low and then not follow. Yes, that's wrong. Um, I'm very anti- Well, we can talk about that. We've got so much to talk about, Peter. <laughs> um, I do think it's important to think through you know, dividing it amongst multiple companies and then take several years to find those companies. Don't rush at it. So how many a year? Four or five years? Yeah, four or five years, probably yeah, a good yeah, meter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that sort of order. So you're perhaps doing it over over five, five years, years. Yeah, that sort of order, yeah. finding the companies. And it's a long-term game. Yes. Okay, before we go on to the investor invest and what you can do on yeah. the board again, you obviously maybe slightly disagree about not just putting money in the first round. My view is that you should have three times your first money. So the second time okay. investment is because they'll get it wrong. Yes. So you have to rescue them and extend the runway. The third time is to actually assist further with the journey. Yeah. So if you're going to if you're going in 10k's, which is a relatively small amount, then you've got to have 30 available. If you're going in 50k's, 150. Do you disagree with that? That's interesting. I, I think it depends on the stage you like to invest at. I'm doing about very early, so, yeah, so you, pre-revenue probably, exactly. MVP possibly. Yeah. So I've tended to probably have about double the money. So okay. it, I would typically invest say 25,000. And then reserve another twenty five thousand for future needs. And you're going very early. Others mostly yeah. to seed rounds. Mostly, I've gone to seed rounds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we don't disagree by much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about investor investors. So what you've done on the board. We talked about it a bit before. Yeah. When do you come off the board? You know, yeah. you're helping them. They like you. Hopefully, mm. and obviously, you'll come off if there's an exit. 
You might get pushed off by somebody, by yeah. a VC? Yeah, quite, quite no, I've had a number of situations where I've been pushed off the board because other investors have come in and felt... And, and pushed off positively, or has it been a difficult conversation? Uh, I, the one I was most disappointed about was that um, I, I'd been on the board of Zoopla right from the beginning, and then when Zoopla merged with uh, Digital Property Group, part of DMGT, you know, Daily Mail General Trust wanted to put three members of the board on, I lost my board seat at that point, which was disappointing to me because I wanted to see the journey right through to flotation. Oh, yeah. So I missed that part of the journey, unfortunately. So these things happen. If you're an angel investor that put 25K in and then another 25K, yeah, you can't yeah. really expect to stay on there forever. Yes, unless the, the fact the entrepreneur really, really wants you for some yeah. reason and can somehow use that as leverage and when setting the terms of the deal. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another reason why I prefer being a VC. I know that's not your journey, yeah. uh, but when you're a VC that you do invest probably three times. Chunky amounts. And, and, you, can, and, and you, you are very important. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. very important. Well, yeah, so yeah. we're talking Cambridge about nominee structures now where you put a number of angels together, yeah. giving you more than the magic 10% if 10% is the yeah. amount for a board seat, so you might have 20%. Yeah, so that will keep idea. you on later on. You can also trade internally in a nominee structure as well, but yeah. this will be subject to another podcast. So also your Rolodex. So your Rolodex in terms of future investors, yes. customers, suppliers, that must be pretty good now. It's, it's good. I think that the thing that the entrepreneurs I've worked with when I've been an angel on the board have most valued is really introductions to investors and having those taken seriously and then helping them to negotiate the terms with the investors because I've tended to back people that haven't been entrepreneurs before. Mm. So it, a lot of it's new to them. One of the pieces I really enjoy is spreadsheets and cap tables. <laughs> Everybody's their own. Yeah, you know, it might seem a bit odd, but like I remember several times during the Zoopla journey, there was opportunity for a bit of secondary that you know the management took some money out. I once took some money out early on, and I just enjoyed doing the spreadsheets of who should get what allocation and all that sort of stuff. Yes. And that, that's helpful to some entrepreneurs. Yes. I think there's lots of situations when you're an investor where you can help tilt the table a little bit to mm. improve the odds and being smart at cap tables is one area where I've made a difference, marginal difference in lots of different businesses for my benefit and the entrepreneur's benefit. And then other things are, are understanding how to manage the cash flow forecast. I tend to get involved with, as well with the spreadsheets of, you know, how long does our money last? Should we be hiring people this quickly or should we slow down? You know, what can we do to change the pricing? You know, trying yeah, sure. to help the entrepreneurs as a mentor with various aspects of their financial model. It's the other right. piece I quite enjoy doing. And, of course, you've been on a lot of these journeys anyway, so trying to yeah. prevent them making mistakes. Exactly. Assuming they listen, of course. Actually, that's a really important point and a good thing to look out for as any type of investor is that I like to, and we say this at episode one as well generally, we like to invest in entrepreneurs that want our help but don't need it. So the sort of people we're looking for is what we call coachable, yeah. where they will give advice, or I'll give advice as an angel investor on the board or whether or not on the board, and every time you want them to listen, and you know, a certain proportion of the time you want them to take your advice, but you want them to be strong enough to yeah. often say to you, actually, I think you're wrong. I want yes. to do it this way. You want people who've got the strength of their own convictions, but yet listen. That's a great way of expressing that. Yeah. Yes, so yes. The passion, the drive, the vision, everything, yeah. and then push you aside when they think it's right. They might be yeah. wrong, of course. Yeah, they might be. Yeah. Yeah. It's their business. And, yeah. and I think we've got to accept that as angel yes. investors. We're not running the business. I mean, I was on a panel in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about how the CEOs of big companies become angels, and they don't do it very well. And in fact, we had a podcast the other day where somebody said that was one of the first thing he had to learn was the fact that he wasn't CEO any longer. He mustn't control the entrepreneurs because they'll hate that. Yeah. 
And chance is wrong as well. Yeah, that's right, because the entrepreneur's there every day. Yes, you're only exactly. there once a month or whatever it might be. So what did you wish you'd known when you started all this? There must be thousands, but let's just come up with one or two things that you've specifically learned over the years. One of the things that's been very healthy, I tend to invest in software-driven businesses. I have all, all my career, all that's in very wide, lots of industries and marketplaces mm. and some pure B2C and lots of deep tech. And the thing that's always salutary, I suppose, is that things that you think should sell often don't. Mm. And I really like the concepts that have come about in recent years with Lean Startup and particularly the concepts of customer development. So as early as possible in a company's life, they've got to go out and test their proposition on customers, often before even building anything. Mm. And the whole concept of customer development and going out and doing test marketing or test sales of your product, but in in a way that you, you don't say, if I built this, would you buy it? Mm. You know, putting the question in the potential customer's mouth, you've got to ask clever questions that understand their context, work out whether or not you know what their alternatives are today, whether what you're thinking of building is something that, that they might buy, and if so, how would they think about the return on investment of buying your product? Exactly. So all those aspects of customer development, I knew nothing about that when I started Book Pages or Friends Abroad, and very, very useful things for entrepreneurs. But as an investor as well, I have several times invested in companies where I thought, oh, that's bound to sell, and then it just doesn't. And what I've experienced trying to help those entrepreneurs is it's really hard to diagnose why something doesn't sell. Mm. Your price, you can do. We don't want to drop the price and find it wasn't price after all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But sometimes it's sales execution, and sometimes there's much more competition than you thought. Um, Sometimes it's just that you're selling into an industry where people make decisions incredibly slowly. You have to wait for the next annual budget cycle. And there's just so many things that can mean that stuff doesn't sell that that's frustrating. So let's just sort of wind up gradually. The tips for angels. So what tips have you got for angels? I mean, everybody says this, but the most important overall thing is you're looking for amazing people, a team, as we said before, ideally it's two or three people at the top of a business who are doing something Ideally, it's disruptive, but something that's in a big market. Mm. I tend to like to think about markets in a sort of bottom-up way of thinking about the unity economics of what's this company trying to do, how many customers are there out there, you know, how much would it sell for, and when you multiply that out, can you build a business that is ideally in the long, long run going to be $100 million in revenue? Lots of angels tend to go for things that are smaller. I do. Actually, again, this is something I'll disagree yeah. on you. I think you can have a really great exit for a company that's only turning over $5 million. If you get in early enough and it's, it's on the right growth path. You can do. I mean, if, if it's on the right growth path, so in the end it could end up being yeah, a 50 million yeah, turnover yeah. business, mm. then it can be. But there's loads of things that will end up, if they work, there'll be a lifestyle business that might have two, three, five exactly. million in revenue, even in the long run. Yeah. And they're, they're good businesses for the entrepreneurs to own. But you can't get out of them. you can't get out of them as an yeah. investor. Mm. So I think it's really important to look for things that can scale to be something big in the end. So it's great people, great market, and then the deal. I mean, I, I like to turn down plenty of things where I think it's too expensive. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. We're sitting in London here in High Holborn, which is sort of not very far from City and not very far from Shoreditch. Yeah. Let's expand on that a bit. Well, yeah, and, and actually, I might be wrong. I've got to admit <laughs> this, because when we first invested in Betfair, we actually, we actually invested in Flutter, which then merged with Betfair a year later. The price was crazy. It was like, crazy high. And it in, ended up in the five to 10 million range, wasn't no, it? You'd be amazed. It's the height of the internet boom. The company had already had like $25 million of investment. Okay. And we, we invested at a valuation of about $100 million. The first time you went the first in. first time we went in, we put $7 million in. And then when it merged with Betfair, because it had all the cash, 
ended up with a bigger stake than you know they cr- yes. they crushed the preference, but they gave us a bigger stake than we would otherwise have had. Yeah. We ended up doing really well out of it. Right. Uh, but valuation at that point was crazy, and yet that was our home run in the, in the Chase episode one portfolio. And then been in other situations before we had a fund. It's a bit unfortunate. We were talking to Will Shu at Deliveroo, and uh, his valuation when we first started talking to him was three million. Yes, and then he raised money from Index. I think it was at seven and a half million or something. Yes, and we just never got to it. We didn't have a fund, so we, you know, but you we can't that regret one. the ones you miss, can you? Uh, that's true. There's a great thing. Uh, what's the VC in the states has got the anti-portfolio Bessemer Ventures. Okay, it's well worth looking at that page. Bessemer Ventures anti-portfolio. Anti. Okay. Yeah, and uh, they say the same thing. They've got on their anti-portfolios companies like Google. Okay, um, that they saw but missed. I think it's healthy to be aware of the things that you missed. And, and I missed SwiftKey. I was on, on the email trade of SwiftKey yeah. when it was at, a, at probably about $3 million valuation itself at $250 million. Had some capital in between, of course, but even so. I missed another one recently where the founders were in my own living room and it sold recently after five and a half years for 37x. And I didn't invest. You know, we are going to do that. If you regret those, you'll never invest. Exactly, that's true. Oh, you invest, well, you invest too many. Yes, yeah, of course. The valuations here in London are higher than Cambridge. I think everybody knows that. You still will turn stuff down. Yes. I mean, uh, as I say, we, we do have healthy debates about it here. And in fact, another counterexample is that one of our most exciting companies as episode one is Cloud NC, which helps. Yeah, no, I looked at that quite closely, which came out to Entrepreneur it First. It did. And, that was, and the valuation was quite high. Wasn't that, that, was when you highest, went in? that was the highest valuation. Yeah, we all looked at that and thought, any what's company I'm doing here? Exactly. It was something like... <laughs> 5.7 million yes, free. Straight out of a straight out of on 13 week or whatever it is. Yeah. Program. Now we're actually going to do very well out of that because it's really difficult software and they've managed to crack it. Theo Savile, the, the founder, is one of those entrepreneurs that everybody just believes in. So he was able to command a high valuation then and, and he, he's going to going forward. So let's just talk about tips for entrepreneurs. You, you how many entrepreneurs have had come into this room or your rooms? Must be hundreds or thousands so far you've pitched to. What stands out? What can you tell the entrepreneurs that listen to this? Yeah, there's just so many things. In fact, one of the things I would say that's fun about being an investor is that you're always learning. I mean, I've been doing it now since 99, so what's that? Nearly 19 years. Yes. And uh, I'm still learning every day, which I really enjoy. Yes. So every situation is different. Every situation is a learning experience. But for the entrepreneurs, I think, I mean, you only live once and you're going to put all your eggs in one basket for 5, 10, 15 years. Just do something big. Do something that can be that sort of 50 or 100 million turnover business. I mean, that's not always true. Sometimes people would be better off building a one, two, five million turnover business and owning 100% of it. Mm. That's fine if that's what they want to do, go and do Mm. that. But if they want to build something that changes the world, is very disruptive and makes lots of money for themselves and their investors, they should look for something big to do. Because a very large proportion of the Deals that come into us, we turn down because they just don't feel big enough. Right, okay. But that's with your VC hat on. Is that also with your angel hat on? Yeah, really. I think so. I mean, okay, maybe as an angel, you can invest in something that's going to end up being 20 million turnover. Right. Other tips for entrepreneurs are really that it's a very, very competitive world out there. And generally, when you think you've found something clever, then somebody else is doing the same thing. Right. So it's really great for entrepreneurs to raise plenty of money, to be able to afford to hire really good people to then go fast at whatever it is that they're trying to do because somebody else is probably building the same thing in a garage somewhere else and running fast and, and executing well is, is really, really important. But then, of course, to raise lots of money, you need a decent valuation, otherwise you dilute them too far. So yeah. they've got to be able to sell, as you mentioned, uh, Cloud NC. Yeah, in fact, in yeah. fact I, I, I've got uh, five kids, in fact, and my oldest daughter is uh, about 26. 
I'm very hopeful that one day she'll be an entrepreneur. And I've said to her since she left university, the most important thing to do is to learn to sell. So go and start off your career working at at selling, and then you can do whatever you want to do when you run. And she's done that. She's listened to her dad. Amazing. It's incredible. (laughs) Only on that one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Final question. It's always the same question. There's only five or six years between us. So let's change the question slightly. What are you going to be doing on your 70th birthday? Are you going to be doing something similar? Are you going to walk away from this and sail into the sun on your yacht? Yeah, that's a good question. My wife points out to me that she's known me for about 15 years, but I always say that I'm going to stop working in five years' time. <laughs> she said that really? Yeah. And she's getting fed up with me saying it. Well, she uh, might win at some point. She, uh, eventually, she probably will win. But I mentioned recently that uh, I just really love learning. Every situation mm-hmm. is different. So I can't see myself ever stopping being an investor. I think, you know, as long as I've got the mental faculty and the, the money to do it, I'll carry but on. But if you're 70 and these take 15 years, yeah. our, our life at the moment, we're about the same age. I think our life experience is about 83 statistically. That means you're not going to necessarily see the fruits of your... That's true. My idea would be to be only doing it one or two days a week. Yes, OK. Um, rather than... Golf course? No. <laughs> don't know. I think I quite, like, I quite like to write books. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Maybe well, I should write a book like you're writing. Okay, yes. You say, yes. <laughs> Excellent sound. Really, really interesting. Really enjoyable. We learned lots. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Signed pre-orders for our Invested Investor book are now available on our website. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor.